Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Welcome everybody to episode 10 of Espresso Martini with myself, Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Matt, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Good to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you back. We're doing well. Did you did you know that the uh, number 10 is a symbol of success and achievement? Did you know that? Is it really? I didn't yeah. know that. Well, it's a good, it's a good solid rounded number. It is. You it know, is. I can see that. That makes sense. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty cool today. So I thought today is, you know, well, today, as as we sort of be discussing, is a day of new beginnings. So maybe picking episode 10 to do it was fortuitous of us. Um, so yeah. today we're launching an extra show that will be a Patreon exclusive, and it will follow immediately after this episode. And that new show is called Extra Shot. And it will give us an opportunity to talk about the stories that we didn't cover, but we really wanted to. And also, we may talk about stories or bits of history that are on our mind at the moment. And in time, we also plan to get on the odd guests and hopefully even some listeners. So to get access to Extra Shot, you'll need to be a Patreon subscriber. So go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies, and you'll need to pick a subscription level. Depending on which level you select, you'll get either a complimentary coffee cup or a set of coasters. So I hope all that sounds like good value to you. We'll be You'll be directly supporting this podcast, and if it becomes popular, we'll be open to expanding and making more content exclusively for you. I just also want to say a huge thank you to our listeners who are currently supporting us on Patreon, and I hope this is the start of an exciting new chapter for us in making more content for you. So, today we have another jam-packed episode. We're going to be looking at a few interesting stories that have caught our eye in the world of espionage, geopolitics, and intrigue, which is our area, especially intrigue. So, um, today we're going to start with a letter that was posted in the Daily Telegraph about the fall of Bakhmut in Ukraine. The author of this letter is a retired colonel named Hamish de Breton Gordon, what a name, and he was in the British Army for 23 years and he was a commanding officer in the UK's Radiological and Nuclear Regiment and also NATO's Rapid Reaction CBRN Battalion, so quite quite an interesting background there. So what I'll do, I'll just go through the details of the article and then Matt, I'll come to you for any thoughts. So the letter is titled, Putin is Toast Without Bakhmut. And it was published in the Daily Telegraph. Not necessarily my favourite paper, but uh, <laughs> once in a while has a good one. Um, so the key point is the article, the fall of Bakhmut has sparked debate and concern in the West. Putin's sudden claim for victory is a response to recent political setbacks back in Russia. Zelensky's visits to the G7 and the Arab summit in Jeddah has garnered sympathy and support for Ukraine. India's Prime Minister Modi lamented the human cost of the war and said far more than many expected him to and he also said that he's committed to finding a way forward to the end of the conflict and his remarks were kind of seen as hardly those of a great friend of Vladimir Putin because Modi has been seen as very close to Putin in recent years. President Biden's decision to allow European countries to provide F-16s to Ukraine is a significant blow to Russia's chances of victory. The author believes it actually hammered the final nail in the coffin for Russian victory in Ukraine so that may be positive for Ukraine now, fingers crossed. The F-16s will provide air superiority and act as a 
powerful deterrent against a future Russian invasion. And calls for greater military support have been obviously ongoing. The supplied tanks and air defense assets have proved vital for Ukraine in its ongoing defense against Russian forces, particularly long-range precision artillery and HIMARS. The availability of these military assets earlier could have led to a decisive Ukrainian victory and deterred Putin from invading. Putin's nuclear threats, ground assaults and air force have all so far failed. And the author notes that failed tyrants tend not to last long in similar circumstances. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on that on that letter? I thought it, it was a very good and, and salient point. I think, I mean, this article um, really kind of touches on on you know so the apparent fall of Bakhmut um very much sort of a a, a pirate uh, victory for Wagner um and the Russians but on top of that and you know the news that the um US sort of gave the, the the green light for the Europeans to sell um F16s to the Ukrainians I think recently there's just been a lot of really positive developments um mm -hmm. it came out of the last week he had um Zelensky kind of doing a a world tour I mean he showed up uh at the arab league summit in uh Jeddah, um which i mean i think it's kind of one can make the argument that it's particularly kind of gross that Zelensky had to go and speak to this at this summit where you know it was the first time that uh bashar al-assad the president of syria had attended um and over a decade i think since the start of the um civil war you know speaking to a body that includes a a country that you know for the last decade or so has been pretty much exclusively propped up by the russian the Wagner group specifically committing you know war crimes in bachar al-assad's name so that's pretty gross uh and then you know jetted off to um uh hiroshima to the g7 summit in uh japan yeah i i think it's it's positive that zelensky went and made these points to the arabs himself in person um, you know, I mean, recently Mohammed bin Salman, who's in the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, kind of like the de facto leader of the Arab League at this point has played kind of a, uh, unfortunately for us, has played kind of a middle ground between, you know, the US that has traditionally been Saudi Arabia's uh, main benefactor and ally, you know, since since the beginning of the post-war order. Um, you know, has sort of, you know, playing that middle ground between the U.S. and now the sort of authoritarian axis that we've talked about on here um, a lot, led by, you know, the Russia and, and and China. You know, I guess his sort of stance now is that Saudi Arabia isn't going to be entirely kind of hold into the U.S. as a client state so much, you know. So I, I think it's, it's, it's good that Zelensky has this personal face-to-face -face relationship with these Arab leaders who 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 can I mean give the Ukrainians a lot a by by not lending support to the Russians at least they can help a lot by just not doing anything and you know B after this war is over eventually um you know their investments can do a lot to to rebuild Ukraine um after this is after this is all over and yeah I, I think it's 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 beneficial that Zelensky has this personal relationship with the Arabs so that it doesn't have to go entirely through Washington. Um, I think that's good. Um, I think you saw a lot of uh, good signals out of uh, Narendra Modi, you know, who was, who was a guest at the G7 um, 
summit who's you know another one uh i think yeah india just passed china as the world's most populous country um so you know you have these two kind of big uh rising rising uh powers in the 21st century and i think it, it, it's good to see signals that um they're willing to play ball with the ukrainians a bit yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, just speaking widely, Middle East and African and some Asian countries have been a bit sort of ambivalent about Russia's war on Ukraine. So I think uh -huh. Zelensky, you know, Zelensky's playing to his superpower, which is, you know, he's very good at kind of going out and physically meeting people and kind of, um, I say win them over. I don't mean that necessarily as a negative. I see that as a positive, but um, he's very good at sort of touching people with his words. I mm -hmm. think he's he's got a real sort of superpower there. Um, and obviously got a great team of researchers and probably uh, sort of speech writers with him as well who aid him in that effort. But he's very good at sort of finding the kind of cultural uh, touch points that, that kind of sing to his audience, I think, or mean something to his audience. And I think he's very good at that. There's never really been, to my knowledge, there's never really been an audience that he's faced that has rejected him. Not that I'm aware of, no. And I, I think that's really, you know, to his credit. Mm -hmm. I mean, he came here to Washington, gave a uh, addressed a, a joint session of Congress that went um, really well. And I think very wisely uh, went out of his way to build relationships with Republicans in Congress, Yeah, which, you know, as you know, could create all kinds of issues for him um, with the, you know, uh, uh, support that the Biden administration has been giving to, to Ukraine. If it becomes a a hard black and white partisan issue here that you know republicans are like no we're not going to support ukraine so i think it's it's good that um that he's developed uh those relationships i mean he's really he's really set himself up as kind of like the avatar of the western world right now which is odd because i mean you wouldn't really until this war i don't think most people would have considered ukraine part of the western world you know very much still mm -hmm. in in the shadow of the of the Soviet Union. Um, and one thing you mentioned uh South Africa too. Um they've had kind of problematic leanings toward the Russians in uh recent years. Um are you familiar with the um it's a very kind of a hyper local uh reason for this. Are you familiar with the role that the Soviets play during uh, apartheid? Not massively, but uh, feel free to kind of uh, tell yeah. us a bit more. So back then, you know, in the worst of uh, apartheid rule when in uh, South Africa, the Soviets were one of the biggest champions against that, um, seeing it, you know, as sort of like an anti-Western, anti-colonialist, very classically left um, stance. But yeah, they were some of the biggest champions against uh, apartheid South Africa. And, you know, um, now many of the people uh who run south africa you know were sort of directly involved in that struggle and have kind of um have uh i think positive views of the russians from from that time you know they they feel that they owe the russians something I and mean, that was the same uh during the libyan civil war the south africans were very supportive of or at least nominally supportive of gaddafi or at least mm. they weren't vocally against gaddafi mm. uh for the same reasons gaddafi was very much anti-apartheid back then in the uh 80s and such mm. um so it's it, it's interesting to see how you know these sort of um small regional issues that you know i think most of us would consider to be you know like gone and 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 and, and in the past mm. still kind of rear their heads in these you know modern conflicts we kind of it's interesting actually 
mention that because it kind of reminds me a little bit of the the Western certain aspects of the Western's left problematic sort of relationship with Russia. Um, oh yeah, you know, you kind of get these sort of figures in British politics who just seem to be a little bit pro-Putin. And you do wonder if it's because of this sort of nostalgia for what the Soviet Union was and the causes it was sort of, um, you know, it's sort of supposedly supported and so on. Right. Well, I think the UK also has a a much um, stronger history of trade unionism, you yes, know, especially yeah. in the working class, you know, the North, the, the traditional red labor wall mm. that, uh yeah, I think lends itself to that sort of classic idea of a communist utopia, a worker's paradise, as it was, which, you know, that's what people thought the Soviet Union was. And for a lot of people, it was. I mean, mm-hmm. if you if you go around and do surveys of a lot of the post-Soviet space, you know, parts of rural and, and eastern, far eastern Russia, parts mm-hmm. of Central Asia. I mean, there's a lot of people who will straight up tell you, yeah, we had it better back then. And they're not wrong. I know in Yugoslavia, they felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. What was Yugoslavia? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, friends who were, who survived the Bosnian war and uh, my friend's mother used to have, have a real sort of uh, rosy eyed view of the past, which was understandable considering she then faced genocide once uh, they lost their Soviet backing. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, one other thing that sort of popped, well, a few other things that popped into my mind with this article. So um, the author mentions how Putin's nuclear threats and air force have sort of so far failed. And I felt like there's been this sort of argument I've seen for a while where people are saying that um, we shouldn't take Putin's sort of nuclear threats that seriously. We should have gone in and armed Ukraine with everything from day one. And I kind of under, I kind of understand that, but at the same time, I kind of... Um, I find this sort of slight dismissiveness of nuclear threats um, a bit problematic for me. I kind of feel like the the approach that the West has taken, or should I say the US as NATO have taken so far, and, um, you know, that kind of gradual approach is probably, I think, kind of the wiser approach. If they'd gone in from day one with F-16s, etc., I think things could have boiled over very dramatically and very fast. Um, yeah. Obviously, this sort of, um, sort of step-by-step or incremental approach has cost many Ukrainian lives. We can't deny that. Um, but ultimately, I put the blame of that loss of life still with Russia, who are the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you and I share a concern about what happens next in Russia, because, um, you know, the loss of Ukraine does spell the end for Putin. What does that mean for Russia? You know, there's been there's been some talk um, recently and in the past of tension, tensions among Putin's inner circle. And... Um, we certainly recently have, um, you know, just yesterday, uh, Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, um, he was very, he, he's been vocally quite critical of the Russian leadership, as he puts it, of handling the war. And he said just yesterday that uh, Moscow's plan to demilitarize Ukraine of its full-scale invasion has failed, instead turning its neighbor's army into one of the most powerful in the world. And I quite enjoyed that description of Ukraine. Um, and setting Russia up for a possible uprising. And he's even gone far as saying that there may be a revolution if leadership does not improve its handling of the war. Um, and that that's that's an interesting comment coming from Prigozhin. And I know some people in the past have sort of seen him as a potential successor or rival to Putin. Um, and, uh, and was it a while back he was he was threatening to withdraw from Bakhmut, wasn't he, just only weeks ago? Um, so there's a lot of, he was running out of ammunition and he he, like, you know, called out the general staff, the defense minister, like by name and said, like, I'm going to pull out if you don't give me ammunition. And they did. Yeah. 
you know and, yeah. and, and honestly I, I mean it's such a I don't know I mean it, it, when you think about uh, the the um, American and British wars in Iraq and Afghanistan I don't think you ever had anybody publicly kind of <laughs> put, um, calling out Bush or anybody in quite that way and stuff it's no, I don't know it's an interesting one it's well, a good point that you make about the the arm shipments that we've been um, giving them. You know, I think a lot of people also don't under uh, understand this. There's a, a criticism in the U.S. at least, you know, like, oh, we're spending all this money on the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, they're not, you know, well, we have homeless issues and issues with the borders and stuff here. I mean, it's a it's a we've talked about this before. It's a fraction of our defense budget that we're using to shred the Russian military apart. It's a great return on investment and what i think a lot of people don't realize we're not like we're not just transferring them like huge we're not transferring the the uh, ukrainians huge sums of cash we're buying we the pentagon is buying or are buying these weapons and equipment from u.s defense contractors right starting up assembly lines in the U.S., providing putting jobs. Yeah. U.S. providing jobs to U.S. workers, you know, keeping the iron hot as it is, producing a lot of this equipment that you know isn't isn't manufactured much, and then sending it over to the Ukrainians. So we're not paying the Ukrainians; we're paying U.S. companies and U.S. workers to manufacture this stuff, yeah, and then giving it to the Ukrainians. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it's a very false argument to say that like we're just mm. you know just shoving them like fistfuls of cash. Well, yeah, I think I think I saw somewhere. The, there were some people because I know we, I'm quite familiar with the criticisms from the Republicans against um, arming Ukraine. Now it's sort of almost got a bit boring watching the Republicans, but I did <laughs> notice there was some stuff from the the left, um, potentially AOC, who who obviously on the, who is a uh, a much you know she sort of loved in some circles the left and absolutely despised on the right. Um, I feel a bit middle ground about AOC. I think she's pretty good on some things and a bit odd on others and and um and i believe she's um was becoming kind of critical of of arming ukraine or at least giving military support and it might have been under that misunderstanding that it's you know america just giving out money um and, mm. and i and i think i don't know whether she would see weapons manufacturing as a positive i don't know um mm. it's an interesting one um i don't know if you've got any insight on on any leftist voices that have been a bit critical of the war I have I have a few friends of mine who are I mean most of my social circle is pretty is pretty progressive. I, I have a few friends who are quite um, I think they're not you know like militantly against it. I mean they're not they're not pro Russian, but I think they are skeptical of it for those same um, reasons. I mean yeah, I, I'm sort of with you in the same place with with AOC. I agree with. A lot of what she says, not everything, especially not this. I mean, I think that aside, she's one of the most effective political communicators of her generation, yeah. whether you like her or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting to see like how how far the debate has come. I, mean, I remember even like just before the invasion and like right after it, like the Germans were like, We'll send you helmets and MREs, you know, mm. to the Ukrainians. Mm. You know, and then it got to be like uh the high mars and and artillery and like the ukrainians asked for it and we said no and then actually we gave it to them and then they asked for what was it tanks yeah you know and we said no and then we gave it to them and then they asked for f-16s and we said no and then we gave it to them you know um so <laughs> it's a bit like some weird parenting book somebody's been reading <laughs> yeah it's a so it's it's become kind of like a weird running joke now but mm. i'm i 
to your point earlier, I don't think it would have been wise to just, you know, whatever the Ukrainians want, as soon as they ask mm. for it, we mm. just give it to them. No questions asked. I mean, I think that's a popular that's a popular position that a lot of, you know, people on on Twitter have. And I think they're coming at it from from the right place, yeah. you know, but yeah. but yeah, you know, Russia is a nuclear power you know comparable only to the united states in terms of you know what it can do with its arsenal um and it is serious and i i think it's it's you know while it's it's good and right that we're giving the ukrainians everything they need to you know beat the shit out of these fascist monsters um i i think it is right to have a bit of of caution and to do this responsibly and to you know make sure that the ukrainians that their air crews are able to you know uh, appropriately handle these very mm. complex uh mm. weapon systems mm. um at the same time i you know reject a lot of the arguments you see on sort of the kook fringes on the right and the left that you know oh well because the russians have nuclear weapons that you know we can't do anything we just have to let them mm. do whatever mm. they want i mean at, at that point you're just giving yourself up to like extortion like okay if if, if the new doctrine is of, of the 21st century is Okay, uh, if a country has a nuclear weapon, they can do whatever the hell they want. And, you know, it's we can't stop them because, you know, it might things might get out of hand. You can't you can't you can't operate that way. I'm sorry. You just you just can't. The problem is with that. I mean, I I, I agree with you and I, th I can still, um, you know, I can see an example in my head already of just a country that contradicts that a little bit is like North Korea It is nuclear armed or it's becoming nuclear armed with ICBMs. And it does. Right. Sort of, and it is sort of getting away of a lot of things. Um, obviously, he's not doing much to his. He's not doing anything that serious to his neighbours at this time. But one worries that if when North Korea kind of develops the ICBM capability, where it could strike the heart of Washington or wherever, um, yeah. that they might start getting a bit bolder, um, and maybe they will do an artillery strike on South Korea one day and just move on in, and then it creates that situation of what happens next. You know, can one? fight that i don't know this is this is the weird nuclear brinkmanship yeah. issue isn't it i mean and again like if russia would be more successful in its war against ukraine once it could have grabbed that land i don't think you'd ever be able to get it back no. um and, and i think it's what the ukrainians know this this is why they're fighting tooth and nail you know god bless them this is why they're fighting so ferociously and so effectively because their back is against the wall and and again like um what was it there was something um comment i think there was something came out a few weeks ago or a week ago where there was a bit of hyperbole on um, Zelensky's um, side, just in private, you know, saying kind of remarks about how we should do this and that to Russia um, in a venting in frustration. And it, it, I don't know if you remember this, it all kind of came out a few weeks ago. And there were some people online who were like, I don't know, I think some people didn't realize that in a, in a war, you know, we're in a, you know, Ukraine's in a war for survival and nobody is, um, Nobody speaks perfect Queen's English during a war. People yeah. get frustrated. People get pissed off. People say stuff like, I don't know, um, oh, it's just nuke Moscow now, you know, in the heat of the moment. They don't literally mean it, but they kind of just say it to kind of get it off their chest to vent frustration. And it was something, I can't remember what it was um, that Zelensky said, but I was just shocked by how many people were so naive on the internet who just don't understand that there is an actual war going on and they could yeah. die or be wiped out tomorrow. And yeah. yet people were kind of getting all hissy 
about Zelensky kind of just getting pissed off um, and saying we should do this, that, and the other. Um, so yeah, I just I find it really quite mind-boggling. So yeah, so back to nuclear brinkmanship and stuff. I think there is I do see people and experienced people too just sort of playing it down a bit. And we're not out of the woods with the nuclear threat yet either. No, I think I mean we've we've talked about this before. I think if and when Crimea comes into play, that'll mm. be the most dangerous. Point. Mm. Massively, massively, and 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 also, um, should Prigozhin, I don't know, be the man who leads some sort of <laughs> anti-Putin revolution, if we put it that way, or somebody else does, um, and and Russia ends up in a kind of weird civil war, it'd be a, going back to those fears that the US had back in the early nineties about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And suddenly you might have opposing forces in Russia and nuclear weapons in play. And who knows? Yeah. I mean, if Prigozhin or some somebody else more um, hardline, even more sort of extreme nationalist and anti-NATO decides, ah, screw it, I'm going to launch a ICBM or something. It yeah. could happen. It's not out of the realms of possibilities. Is it likely? Hopefully not. But it is possible. Um, or... The worst case is, especially with the we're seeing with the maintenance of and training of Russian personnel, the other situation is somebody might accidentally fire one, uh, yeah. which is probably even more likely. But you and I you have know. talked about this. We, you and I were talking about this uh, offline recently about uh, Pricos, and you know, and I said something to the effect that I think I think that you know, JSOC should go after the Wagner Group at least. You know, maybe not involved directly in Ukraine, but to dismantle their operations um elsewhere like in mm. africa and stuff yeah. and you know possibly even off prigozhin i yeah. think prigozhin is a very serious destabilizing threat you know could he would he overthrow putin i don't know but just having that kind of destabilizing influence in russia is is not good for anybody even mm. people you know who are like us who are not are not fans of putin instability in moscow is not good you know we got very I think we got very lucky right at the end of the Cold War. There were no serious power struggles or sort of uh, uh, nuclear accidents that took place. Mm -hmm. You know, I was um, this conversation in many ways sort of became the foundation for active measures. You know, my series of novels. So this was over a decade ago. I was at a conference at the Naval Academy in uh, in uh, Annapolis and there was a dinner one night and I was at a table um, with a professor there who um was involved in various sort of nuclear related issues for the DOD before mm -hmm. she went to uh before she went to the uh academy and i i asked her you know one of the the sort of base plot elements for active measures is a uh russian quote unquote suitcase nuke that uh went missing or was buried back at the end of the cold war and then resurfaces uh during during the novel um this was like right when i started working on it and i asked her you know about these rumors in the 90s of, you know, various GRU defectors and stuff who came out and said that, you know, we lost all these, you know, small tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. um, and and I asked her, um, you know, is that is there any truth to that? And she said, well, they lost them and we found them. Hey, yeah. And that's all I can tell you. OK. <laughs> and from that came... Yeah. I sort of just went nuts with yeah. tax measures with that. Yeah. <laughs> they lost them. We found them. Yeah. That's all I can tell you. Wow. To wow. show you how lucky we got mm. at 
right at the end of the Cold War. Yeah, bloody hell. Yeah. So that's a story for you waiting to be told. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a bit like, is it the sum of all fears with the Israeli mm-hmm. nuclear missile that sort of uh, was on a jet that crashes and then is found yeah. 20 years later or something? Yeah. 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 Doomsday scenario there. It's um, the other. Just to finish up my sort of notes there, I mean, I'm probably repeating myself a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'm still this post-Putin Russia, like it always bothers me, and and the thing is, you know, it's sort of um, how what happens to Russia post the war, um, we, you know, last thing I think anybody needs, um, and this is after obviously it's been a proper due process and people responsible for the war have been tried and convicted, etc that we've got to make sure Russia doesn't become a failed state because I think that's dangerous yes. too. Because if it becomes Weimar Germany, we all know what happened with that. It led to World yeah. War II. Um, and Putinism, his sort of ideology of Putin, I don't, it's not necessarily exclusively Putin's, but he's kind of created this Russia versus NATO mentality. And ever since he came into office, that's been his strategy. And it didn't need to be that way. Now, many on the left want to point to NATO expansionism. I dismiss that now. Um, but I, Putin has definitely been using NATO as a way, or this idea of a NATO threat to embolden himself, because he's doing what a lot of, um, I suppose, dictators do this day. It's sort of Orwellian, isn't it? You kind of find this external threat and galvanize the people around this external threat that everybody can identify with. So for Putin, it's been NATO um, and the US. Um, and obviously, there's some historical uh you know roots and stuff to some of this but um really that shit needs to stop and i think any any post um post putin post ukraine war russia when it does eventually end up hopefully in a way ends up in a sensible situation where it can kind of come back into the international order they need to cut that shit out and there needs to be mm-hmm. some sort of process that says if there's any state tv that's pushing out propaganda anti-western propaganda sanctions are back on you yeah know, the deal i'd give whoever the new president is and provided not a nutcase um one of the the big stipulations for me personally would be that there's no more of his anti-western propaganda on their national television because russia today etc just pumps out anti-western nonsense and it does it on a daily hourly probably minute by minute basis and it's causing yeah. and it's gonna create putin 2.0 unless it's nipped in the bud so that's my yeah <laughs> i think i i'm with you i think that's just it's it's going to be a very complicated journey, you know, mm. if and when this war ends, how you kind of address that. I mean, I think Putinism as an ideology needs to be kind of eradicated. Are we going to eradicate it by marching to Moscow, you know, the way we marched to Berlin in, in World War II? No, we're not going to do that. Should we, at least for history's sake, hold war criminals from this from this war accountable and try and convict them? in absentia yes we should to have this on the record for history that Mm. that 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 this is what happened that said i think there's sort of this fantasy again on in some circles of twitter that like you're gonna have all these russian generals and putin in Mm. orange jump shoots in a courtroom in the hague it's not gonna happen i'm sorry i mean yeah would we all love to see that yes we would Mm. it's Mm. not gonna happen you know so you need to have a realistic expectation of of what accountability will look like once this is over well this is uh, do you know what with that i mean there's a part of me every time we bring up the war criminal thing that kind of i don't know it bothers me it brings up 
should Bush and Blair be brought up for what they did with the Iraq war? I mean, you know, it's, it's different and it's similar. Um, yeah. And I still find, I, I still wrestle with this personally um, because if we start bringing in Putin into The Hague, um, should we bring Bush and Blair in? I don't know. Well, I mean, there's, uh, I think before this summer is over, you know, us here in this country are going to come, we already sort of, begun the process to it i think before the summer is over we're going to be fully in the grips of the process of holding one of our former leaders accountable mm. for for criminal acts i mean not 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 war crimes um but you know we're going to be sort of crossing the rubicon and mm. seeing what happens when a major you know nuclear superpower holds its holds its former leaders to account for crimes that they committed uh while they're in office you know so i think that's sort of an experiment to see how that how that goes. I mean, I don't, should, should we have had more of an accountability, you know, for Iraq? I mean, whether, whether Bush and Blair intended to mislead people uh, going into Iraq is sort of, I don't know. I think it's kind of beyond the point at this point. Bottom line is they fucked up and they were wrong. Mm. And, you know, we lost trillions of dollars. And I mean, yeah, yeah, Yeah. like 3000 some odd Americans, but also many thousands of iraqis mm. you know so should there have been more accountability for that i think so yeah i think we're kind of beyond that now um but but, but yeah i mean there's there's something to be said about you know when and if and how a major world power holds its leaders to account mm. and i think you know to that point we're about to see that in this country before the end of the summer yeah yeah thank you for that matt i would I, that's, mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting times ahead i think on that front and I, and I and obviously you know i've been wrestling with this mentally myself sort of just for a while because i feel i don't know it, it, i've always felt a bit hypocritical a little bit internally because i i you know really would love to see putin brought to account for what he's done um yeah. but then as a part of me it feels like well if we're going down that road there are other people who need to go down that road too so, and I, and I, and I, and as much as, uh, I don't know, there's a bit of Tony Blair I quite like. I thought he was a very effective prime minister. You know, I, I think I joke, I sort of say nowadays he was a great prime minister except for Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan. Um, because he did a lot of good, but his legacy has been completely ruined by his actions with Iraq. I mean, to that same point, like what, what Bush did in, mm. in Africa with, with, with AIDS, the whole PEPFAR uh, initiative, absolutely incredible, yeah. incredible work just yeah. for the, for yeah. the, for the species. Yeah. You know? I know. So it's, it's, it's not black and white, is it? We, we live in no. this sort of very complicated gray world. And, and like, as we were saying earlier, you know, in time, um, the international community is going to have to sort of deal with Russia again. Um, and um got to see what happens and obviously Zelensky had went out and um uh and tried to win over leaders who've been quite ambivalent or very pro-Russia for some time but that's just how politics works and I think people forget that sometimes you know not everybody likes you and you can't always deal with everybody who likes you either you've got to kind of find this sort of middle middle ground somewhere um so yeah so I think I think we've uh, put the world to right with that one. <laughs> so um, we'll move on. In the UK, there's been quite an interesting story this week that involves a former guest of this podcast, Dan Kazita. Bless him. He's a global expert on nerve agents, chemical weapons, 
And he was disinvited from speaking from a government-backed conference on chemical weapons, sorry, chemical weapons demilitarization. Um, and he believes it's because of his outspoken views on various issues such as the UK government's um, policies towards homelessness, Brexit and asylum seekers. And Dan has extensive experience in chemical and biological and radiological weapons warfare, and he is highly sought after for his expertise, and I'm sure he would have provided a lot of value at that conference. Now, the government uh, apparently vetted his social media content, and it obviously um, they saw it included his his criticisms of government policies. And um, the Cabinet Office apparently introduced rules in 2022 where they vet potential speakers' social media accounts. But these rules have not actually been publicly published. Um, so many of the speakers who've been vetted have never even been aware that they are being vetted and there are rules about, about this. Yeah. And the Ministry of Defence states that it checks on speakers to ensure balanced discussions. Uh, but critics of the policy see this as a restriction of freedom of speech and um, see it as a kind of no-platform policy by the government aimed at its critics and opponents. Similar incidents have occurred, um, such as the disinvitation of a lady called Kate Devlin, who's an AI expert, and she was she apparently criticised government policy on social media as well. So, um, and, and obviously critics argue that unrelated political views should not affect participation in events on unrelated subjects and just to finish up with dan i mean he insisted that obviously if he were invited to this conference which he was he would have only spoken about his areas of expertise because that's being a professional and that's yeah. what professionals do and dan is a professional so um yeah it's sort of getting into icky territory this this the government sort of now um no platforming people because they criticized them uh, well, I don't know, Matt, what your thoughts are on this. I don't know. I mean, I've never met or spoken to Dan myself. I've been a fan of his on, on Twitter for a while, and he is he is quite outspoken, mm. um, you know, about on 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 good issues. I know he's done um, he does a lot of really great volunteer work for the uh, migrant issues that you guys had, um, you know, with um, running laundry services for the homeless in in London. Really good stuff. You know, so if like if that's what you're. I don't know if, if that's his activities that you're taking issue with. I think that says more about you than, mm. than mm. him. Mm. To that point, though, I think it's I think it's 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 a loss for for the conversation for these dialogues that you know the British government is is attempting to have at these conference. If I don't know, the only people you're going to have there are like I don't know, Suella Braverman mm. fanboys mm. or you know people who were at that National mm. Conservative conference in Bournemouth recently. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's on. Mm. It's unfortunate. I think it shows a level of insecurity on behalf of the cabinet office, you oh, yeah. know, that they have to sort of like shield themselves off from mm -hmm. people who have dissenting views that aren't even in the fields that the conference is going to be about, you know, like to your point, Dan's not going to come there to talk about the migrant crisis or homelessness in London. That's not what he's an expert in. That's not what he's there for. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate. It is. It is. I think it's a real, you know, it's the it's the beginning of a threat to free speech in many ways, isn't it? Because people now who uh, you know people who may have uh, sensible critical views of government policy are going to be much more reluctant to express their views online yeah. now because they're worried it's going to have a knock on effect on their profession. Um, you know, because I think 
I don't know, in Dan's case, but there are people out there who go to these conferences and it, it sort of helps them professionally. Um, and they may even get a fee from it. I think Dan wavered his fee, if I remember the Newsnight interview correctly. Um, but the thing is, as well, is then being um, blacklisted by the UK government professionally can be seen as a bit of a mark against you as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I think... Uh, I think it has a much bigger effect on people's individual careers than we probably even realize. Um, and I don't think it's good. And it's getting into this sort of Soviet Russia territory, as Dan called it, it's Stalinist, you know. Now we're not able to sort of talk about what's going wrong, you know, whatever happened to truth to power. I can understand banning individuals who support terrorism and those who want to, or who express views about forcibly disposing the government by undemocratic means and kind of mean it seriously, like the mm -hmm. January 6 attacks. Um, and there's been a quite sketchy history in the UK uh, at universities and even some government events where people who openly support Al-Qaeda online um, have ended up speaking at events in front of students and in front of the government and so on. Um, and it's been a real blind spot in that, that over the years has got a bit better. But in some cases at certain universities, that's still an issue. Um, and I also find it slightly ironic that it's sort of a right wing government and supporters of the right wing supporters of the Conservative Party who love to accuse the left of blacklisting and no platforming and cancelling people. Yeah, as I say, it's not yeah. cancel culture. Yeah, they're the ones doing the cancelling, you know, it's quite ironic there. And all you have to do is look at all the sort of anti woke and anti trans hysteria online is to get a taste of how right wing pundits do love to cancel or dehumanize people who hold different political views. So it's, it's rather complicated. Complicated. And also, this apparently this this policy um, came about from last year when a right wing online publication called Guido Forks. Uh, there was a speaker at some government event. I think it was at the sort of uh, part of the Black Lives Matter, Black History Month uh, event that the government were holding last year. And some of the speakers were called out for their anti-Boris um, Johnson views and their anti-Tory government views. Um, and, and uh, you know, some of them could have called the Prime Minister a buffoon, etc. But they, you know, they weren't there to say those sort of things. So it kind of came about from this sort of ongoing kind of culture wars. And it kind of gets again into this sort of grey, icky territory that even I have no idea how to completely navigate. Um, uh, my view has always been, I think, you know, people who openly want to destroy the government are a problem yeah. people let off steam on the internet maybe people shouldn't let off steam so much on the internet well they at least if they're going to criticize government policy need to sort of do it in a um what's the word uh, professional way i don't know if it's the right word but you know what i mean they need to do it in a kind of considered maybe people need to stop letting off steam and need to write more considered prose that criticizes government so rather than saying boris johnson is whatever maybe it's better just to state the facts of where Boris Johnson's policies and decisions are bad rather than adding a judgment to it where you then say, you know, he's a privileged tosspot who doesn't give a shit about people, for example. So, <laughs> so, um, and that doesn't necessarily reflect my views, by the way. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Online discourse is hard to navigate and it can... And it does can mess up your career. Yeah, I think it's it's um, it's very easy to lead into a level of 
groupthink if the only people that you know Downing Street and Whitehall want to hear from mm. are people who are completely ideologically in lockstep with mm. with the Tories. Um, you know, it just it lessens the amount of people that you're gonna hear from. And that's not to make the point that like, you know, how do you know that Nazis are bad if you haven't been to a Nuremberg rally? I mean, that's a very stupid argument that I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to go into that uh, level. But I think it's I think most reasonable people would see would be able to determine, you know, what kind of speech a person makes online is appropriate or not to them have them speak at a government conference that has nothing to do with what they said mm. online. It's sort of a, it's, it's, I can't give you like a solid example right now, but it's one of those things that like people know it when they see it that, yeah. you know, no, okay. Yeah. That's not, that's not good for you to be there. Um, speaking out in favor of migrants and the housing crisis is not, is not one of them. No, no, exactly. It is. It's, um, it's, again, like it is ironic. Like the debates I've had with people about free speech versus hate speech, generally the right-wing people end up chatting with about this, always bring up, well, freedom of speech is all about, like, you know, uh, being able to debate ideas, etc. And so, yeah, so they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot with this supposed, like, it's about debating ideas, because if you can't have people who have opposing views at your conference or whatever... Um, then it, it is a bit problematic. But there is a fine yeah. line between what I think is hate speech and what's freedom of speech. If you start dehumanizing people who look different to you, that's getting into hate speech. If uh-huh. you have an issue, I don't know. Um, yeah, again, it's very difficult to kind of make an example, isn't it? Because it's, it, it's, it's just, as you said, you kind of know it when you see it. So yeah, I, I think it's it's quite tricky to navigate but there but in some ways there is simplicity to it as well well i think a lot of people on the right and sort of that sort of libertarian techie kind of sphere mm. fundamentally misunderstand and i think some people do it intentionally from a bad faith yeah. place distort the idea of what free speech is so mm. at least here at least the first amendment means that the government can't prosecute you yeah or something that you say yeah you know and even you can say a lot of hate speech in this country can be prosecuted for it that's what the first amendment does the first amendment doesn't mean that you can say whatever the hell you want without criticism or consequences yeah you know the first amendment also protects people's right to not want to associate with you because of the crazy offensive shit that you say you know the first amendment does not give you protection to say whatever you want and not be criticized for it that's not what it is it's so the government can't prosecute you for yeah. it yeah yeah definitely and one other point actually people forget that twitter facebook etc are privately owned platforms and you do not have a god-given right to say what you like no. on those platforms because the corporation First Amendment doesn't apply to them no it doesn't the corporation in a sense is just um allowing you to say what you like but it can t- change its mind at any moment and say no yeah no more and the good thing about a capitalist society yeah. is that, okay, if there's some private tech platform that doesn't allow you to say something mm. on this platform, you're free to go make your own platform <laughs> to say what you want on it, which plenty of people on the right have done because they weren't able to say it on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, now they can say it on Twitter. So. 
Now they can. Now comedy is legal oh, again God. on Twitter, and you can announce your presidential campaign, and it'll crash. Yeah. And burn oh my goodness. Yeah. Poor old Twitter. But that's, <laughs> that's a, another. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing. Maybe for extra shot later. Who knows? Yeah. But, so look, I'll, I'll quickly wrap up on the Turkish election just because we touched sure. upon it in the last episode. So um, there's another presidential runoff happening in Turkey this weekend. Um, guys, almost like deja vu. This. So on the 28th of May, there'll be another election in Turkey to decide whether President Erdogan will continue as president or whether it will be Yamel Kılıçdaroğlu, head of the opposition. So uh, Kılıçdaroğlu has accused Russia of um, interfering in the previous election that happened on the 14th of May. And apparently Russia created a deep fake video and used false material and um, created a sex tape that involved uh, another candidate in the election, Maharim Inje. And he was allegedly, you know, he was allegedly kind of filmed uh, performing a sex act with someone. And he then had to withdraw from the from the race. And um, a spokesperson for the Kremlin has denied any allegations of election interference. But we do know that Russia's favorite hobby is election interference. So election interference is a big deal with Russia. And we've seen it quite a lot since 2016. So frankly, I wouldn't put it past the Russian government to be somehow behind this. And with AI technology, etc., you can now create deep fakes that um, could put you in all sorts of compromising situations. And also now that can provide a great defense for people who do participate in awkward and compromising things too so we're getting into a very interesting place now um so current polls indicate that it's going to be a close presidential election um and the candidates need over 50 percent of the vote to outright win erdogan wants to send a message to the west for this election um and his interior minister even went further saying that the previous vote on the 14th of may was a political coup by the west so um you can kind of see some interesting things going on there kalich derulo's campaign he's campaigning for reform and dismantling of erdogan's authoritarian regime he also is proposing a sort of different foreign policy that may or may not sort of uh, affect relations with russia and so i think russia want erdogan to hold on to power if they are uh, interfering with the opposition and it's interesting as well that russia are so bold in that because obviously if kalichirulo does win that does create a very awkward situation for turkish russian relations with the new president and so matt what are your thoughts on all this well Erdogan's another one of those sort of authoritarian-ish figures like Mohammed bin Salman, who's been playing a kind of middle ground, mm-hmm. unhelpful middle ground between the West and Russia, China, that kind of authoritarian um, axis. It does seem um, the runoff election is coming up on, yeah, it's on it's on Sunday. Um, so the day after this podcast comes out, it, it does seem like... Um, Erdogan will win again. And I mean, honestly, probably be in office for the rest of his life if we're being if we're being honest. I suspect you're right there. Um, not the outcome I would have wanted. Uh yeah, I mean, so he got Erdogan got just shy under 50% of the vote in the first round of the elections. You have to get over 50% to avoid a runoff. So just narrowly miss not having that. Uh, the third place candidate recently, you know, I've out of the race because, because the runoff endorsed Erdogan, it seems like he'll pull it out, but, um, you know, to your, to your point here about these, uh, you know, AI powered deepfake videos, this is a, something that we're going to have to grapple with repeatedly. I'm, I, I bet we'll see 
something to that effect here in the 2024 election in the US yeah. how serious what yeah. it what what impact it'll have I don't know but I would bet money that you'll see it something like that um I think it doesn't help that that across broadly across the board like we're not just talking about you know like third world countries that you know aren't quite you would say sophisticated I guess that would believe this stuff I think you would have widespread belief of of a deep fake video here in the US even just because it it conveniently fits a narrative that a large segment of the population wants to believe you know like let's say okay um in the 2016 election that access Hollywood um tape of Trump saying you know mm-hmm. if you're a star you can grab him by the you know what nowadays he could just come out and say up oh, deep fake not real you know they made it up and there's a huge segment of the population that because it's convenient for them to believe that they'll just believe it and go back into their corners and that's it that's the end of it you know that's a huge problem with these with this AI technology and its ability to just to just fuck with issues internationally um, it's, it's, yeah, that you can make these videos that can destabilize things, but the ability to, you said in the intro for, for bad actors who are caught doing nefarious, not nice, good things to just say, oh, it's a defake, you know, whatever, and just dismiss it to that point, uh, fairly soon, I'm going to be recording an interview for this podcast with a friend of mine, um, who's a bit of an expert in AI to talk about all of these scary dystopian issues brilliant well this is it ai has been i think on everybody's mind for some time now it's certainly been on mine Mm -hmm. a bit this year um yeah it's weird it's by about since about february uh all i've been thinking about well it's not all i've been thinking about but i it's been on my mind a lot ai it's been a massive Mm -hmm. um shift and i can't why did it happen in february what happened did i mean was it just chat Chat gpt GPT came out did it yeah Yeah, that came out to public use and everyone was like oh crap yeah, and it's just mad. I even went on a, a screenwriting course about how to use it kind of sensibly because obviously um, there are people out there who could use it to sort of generate something from scratch. But I can tell you now that most of the stuff you generate from scratch is pretty awful. Um, it's bad. But it requires an awful lot of work. And by the time, you know, you might as well just written it yourself by the time. You know? So it's, I mean, yeah. This is also outside the scope of this podcast, but I mean that AI question is also right now right at the heart of the writers uh guild it strike is. in 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 Hollywood. And also, you know, if if the Screen Actors Guild goes on strike soon, I mean they're gonna have the vote to authorize the strike fairly soon. Mm-hmm. Um the same issues will be right at the center of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Reg- regulating this stuff and figuring out a way to to distinguish what is real and what's not you know either in entertainment mm. or in 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 news mm. um i don't i don't i don't know how we sort those things out but um that's something i uh would like to talk about um when that friend of mine comes on soon yeah brilliant brilliant excellent well look matt we're gonna wrap up espresso martini here um so you know thank you everybody for listening on espresso martini we will be continuing on extra shot um so you can join us now if you go to patreon dot com forward slash secrets and spies and uh if you become a subscriber you can access us on extra shop and we're going to be continuing on with stories that we haven't covered and in fact there's a mossad spiring that may have been wrapped up in turkey that we'll probably have a quick chat about Ooh. so uh we'll catch you on the other side matt where where can listeners find out more about you and your work uh i'm on Twitter at uh, Fulton Matt, and then uh, my website, which is mattfulton.net, um, has you know the the novels and all that good stuff on there. You can you can find that. 
Excellent, excellent. And uh, everybody, thank you very much for listening. Please do consider leaving a review because all reviews help boost our algorithm and help other people find the show. If you want to get access to our extra shop, please become a Patreon subscriber. And uh, thank you again for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Thank you.